Support for AHLA comes from Verilon Partners, Inc., a national leader in valuation, transaction advisory, compensation, and strategy exclusively in the healthcare industry. Verilon's Brain Trust approach pulls together focused teams of trusted advisors that work together to provide comprehensive solutions for an organization's complex and interrelated needs. For more information, visit Verilon.com. Hello and welcome to this AHLA podcast. Thank you all for tuning in today. My name is Danielle Bangs. I'm a principal with Verilon. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Connor Reedy, Earl Barnes, and Andrew Rehagen regarding some of the topics that they raised in their recent panel discussion at the AHA annual meeting, which was on the topic of partnership strategies, surprises, and pitfalls of mergers, joint ventures, and flying solo. So today we'll have the opportunity to take some of the topics that they raised during their session a bit further and learn from their collective experience. Um, But before we dive in, let's start uh, maybe with some introductions so that everyone listening has a sense for who each of you are and your backgrounds. Earl, would you like to start? Sure, be happy to and happy to be here. Uh, My name is Earl Barnes. I'm the uh, Corporate Vice President and uh, General Counsel for Sentara Healthcare. Uh, based here in uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia, and we are an integrated delivery network that uh, provides services throughout uh, Virginia and parts of North Carolina. And Andrew, how about how about you? You want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Danielle. So I'm Andrew Rehagen. I'm the Vice President of Legal Affairs and Deputy General Counsel for American Orthopedic Partners based in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. We're a private equity-backed, physician-owned, and physician-led national orthopedic practice. Um, I've I've been with AOP for a little over a year, and prior to joining AOP, I I worked primarily in healthcare compliance and helped build the compliance programs for a a national substance use disorder provider and a large regional anesthesia practice. Thank you. And Connor? Hi, I'm a partner with Winston & Strawn. Um, I'm based in Chicago. I do a lot of antitrust work, including uh, the uh, health work with healthcare systems and practices, uh, not just in Chicago, but all over the country. And uh, happy to be here to talk to you, Daniel. Excellent, thank you all. So as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, the genesis for the topics we'll dive into today uh, was your recent panel discussion that focused on healthcare partnerships and transactions. So starting out maybe from a big picture perspective, um, healthcare transactions have been occurring at a very rapid pace the last few years. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you see that trend continuing uh, or, and you know, whether you see any changes in the types of transactions that are likely to occur. Uh, Andrew, what, you wanna start off with this one? Sure. So I, I may have a bit of a different perspective from uh, what Earl may may see in his role, but I don't really see this the healthcare transaction slowing down. I, I think we've seen a bit of a dip uh, in the last few months as the market has kind of reacted to uh, different economic pain points. Um, and I think physicians, especially on, on the physician practice side, um, and the investment bankers that that we see. Uh, working with those physician practices, I think they're taking a little bit of a, a cautious approach at the moment. But once the market settles, I, we don't really see any, and I, I personally don't see any any real slowdown. I think you may just see a little bit of correction um, uh, in terms of the, how quickly deals are are done. We, they may uh, 
may take a little bit longer to, to close and to finalize, but I really, the interest is still very high. Um, the, and there's still a lot of motivation in the market. So I don't, I, I see the trend co- continuing um, just maybe a bit of a, a blip or a hiccup right now while, while the market kind of settles. Mm-hmm. And Earl, you, you may have a different perspective. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, actually I, I, we're aligned on that. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day uh, I do see this kind of, uh, you know, activity that's in the marketplace, certainly this acquisitive nature that's in the marketplace, uh, just continuing on. Um, I don't, I don't think we're, we're going to see it stop. Um, yeah, I happen to have worked at an organization that, that did make the difficult decision to, to split apart. Um, and, you know, but I, I think that that's more the exception than the rule at this point. Um, and I, I think that, you know, certainly from what I'm seeing um, in the market that I'm in now, uh, you know, we've got, just a ton of deals sitting on the board uh, that we're looking at and opportunities that we're looking at, uh, all of which in the end, you know, the hope is will will help us um, expand and grow and uh, put us in a better position uh, for our patients and our members. Yeah, there certainly seems to be a lot of activity at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, Connor, how about from an antitrust impact perspective? You see the level of activity or the types of transactions changing based on the level of antitrust enforcement we're seeing at the moment? I think it, the impact is probably more on uh, the number of transactions um, than maybe the type. You know, I, I think generally there is a preference more for the more integrated uh, full asset merger type deals. And, you know, some of those deals um, that previously were borderline, you know, and in the current enforcement administration uh, may no longer be borderline. And, uh, you know, you may see uh, the different people who are thinking about doing transactions, you know, pulling back a little bit. You know, we've already seen in the last year the FTC challenge uh, through transactions that led to abandonment. And, you know, those are just the ones we see. I'm sure there's others that um, have uh, received pushback um, from the government even before, you know, a formal lawsuit. And, you know, that, that can lead to abandonment. But, you know, basically it gives people second thoughts about, you know, which type of deals, you know, maybe people look a little farther afield uh, in their deals instead of the, you know, hospital next to them, they're looking, you know, a, a few towns down, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, there, there also is, you know, it, it could cause uh, it, systems to also consider whether there are alternatives to, you know, the full asset merger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether we, I have, you know, seen clients look at, you know, whether there's um, less than full asset um, merger that they can do in order to, you know, for example, fill out a, a service line where they are uh, not as strong as they would like to be and like to have more capabilities. So um, it's certainly a possibility that, you know, some more of those transactions will go through, but I think it's likely more the uh, people will look at different partners or, you know, di- different geographies than um, they eventually would uh, look uh, in a different enforcement environment. Great. So building a bit on the topic of structure, uh, your presentation highlighted, you know, the range of different transaction structures that we see 
uh, and, you know, the, the, the pros and cons to them. And, you know, I know this group has experience with partnerships that span that spectrum. So, Andrew, maybe maybe starting with you this time, I know you mentioned that um, American Orthopedic Partners typically uses a JV structure, and you can probably better define what that means. But can you share why that structure is, you know, a model that has worked best for for your organization and, and why other structures may not have been a good fit so far? Sure. So, so we actually, sh I shouldn't, I, I'm not going to say we shy away from the JV structure, but we're still kind of feeling that out. Um, as a, a pretty early company, we've, we're, we've only been around for around uh, two years. So we're still trying to, um, we're still trying to, that out how that works for us as an organization and how it helps us grow. We, we focus more on the purchase agreement side um, where we are, are buying um, independent orthopedic practices. And so if you want to split that out into a dichotomy, you can cut it up into an asset purchase or a stock purchase. And of those two, we, we typically lean toward the asset deals. Um, there's just less risk of, of inheriting liabilities um, you have fewer issues with benefits and retirement plans rolling over. Um, there's also potential tax benefits on, uh, in terms of a stepped-up basis for an asset deal. Um, overall, it, it just presents a much simpler structure. Uh, but on the flip side, for the sellers, a, a stock purchase is, is a little bit more beneficial, um, especially the, the tax structure. Um, and just there's some benefits with maintaining your, your tax ID and the continuity there. So we prefer um, the, the asset deals because they're simpler. Um, but again, it, it, it's not really a, an either or proposition. It's a, you just have to feel out what the deal is and you have to feel out where the the sellers and your partners and, and what works best for them and, uh, you know, possibly being able to meet them in the middle. So mm -hmm. I don't know if we necessarily have a preferred or, or a, a preferred transaction structure or one we're averse to, um, you know, it, it just, it's a balancing act based on the deal. Yep, that's that's helpful. And and Earl, maybe building on that, um, anything to add, or you know, your thoughts on how uh, the ideal structure might change based on the specific partner or opportunity at hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the key is remain flexible. And so, you know, I think as you look at many of the uh, um, you know hospital systems uh, over the last five to seven years, you, you have seen a lot of activity on the JV side of things. And, and it, when I'm looking at that though, I'm talking more about the build out of the ambulatory uh, space and being able to provide ambulatory services. And so um, you will see the joint ventures that will exist between uh, hospital and physician group, uh, hospital and maybe a proprietary company to provide a particular service. And I think those have worked, generally have worked well um, because again, it's it's on the front end, I think there's been discussion about a need within the community um, and, and that need is being met via this JV and it's not necessarily a scenario in which the hospital has to fully own or control, uh, nor does the, the other partner need to fully own or control. They can work together um, in the marketplace. So, um, but then I do think that, that the other activity that we've seen an awful lot of over the years has been the, the full on uh, merger, so to speak, or membership substitution. And uh, those take um, much, many more hours of, of work, in, in my view, and due diligence. And, you know, as, uh, uh, as Connor alluded to in his, his initial comments, um, you know, there are some very real antitrust concerns that have to be addressed as you're, as you're moving forward. Yeah, that's helpful. And, and 
Laurel, one of the comments that you made during the presentation that, that stuck with me, and, and I think, you know, is in the context of, um, I believe in the context of arriving at, you know, the right structure, but also uh, diligence and managing expectations, but you emphasize the importance of clarity of purpose mm -hmm. and it being a, a critical factor for successfully working through developing a partnership. Do you want to speak to this a bit and share some of your thoughts and experience on this point? Sure. So, you know, for me, clarity of purpose really is taking the time to understand what what's truly needed. And, and some of that soul searching, so to speak, goes on, should go on within each institution before they even begin talking with one another. Um, and so much of that stems from strategic plans that are developed uh, within your within your institution. And what are, you know, what do we plan to look like in three years and five years um, in 10 years? And, you know, what are the needs within the community? And so I think if you've been able to have that honest dialogue internally, um, and that's going to include your board members, it's going to include senior management, um, it, you know, it, there's going to be, it, it's going to include the community um, in terms of what's needed. I think that helps define better what's truly needed. And so when you start to have dialogue with another potential partner in the community, or it, it, as I mentioned, um, you know, you've seen other instances where JVs are set up with proprietary companies that, mm -hmm. that provide a very specific service, such as imaging. Um, I think when you have that clarity of purpose of what's needed, and, and if those other institutions have engaged in that same type of dialogue, it makes for a, a far more robust um, and meaningful partnership uh, between the entities. Because again, there's an understanding of what's needed, um, and, and there's an understanding of where the parties are headed. There's quite frankly, an understanding of, of what this type of a venture really means. Is this an in perpetuity type venture or is this something that we project might last 10 years? Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of evaluate where we're at uh, at the end of the 10 year period. But either way, I, I think um, thought on the, on, the, on the beginning end uh, at the forefront and I think dialogue um, usually leads you to a point of coming up with a structure and an enterprise uh, that has the ability to uh, uh, to withstand, uh, you know, the upward and downward pressures of the marketplace. That's very, very helpful. Andrew, anything to add to that? No, I think Earl hit the nail on the head with that. It, when you start bringing, you know, from his perspective, when you start bringing a hospital system and another joint venture partner, or even from our perspective too, where we're dealing in the independent physician practice space, if both parties don't know what they're good at, you know, their strengths, their weaknesses and where their opportunities are, and if they can't be honest and and, and have a, a very solid dialogue around that, you really do run the risk of, of having a, a poor partnership. Um, and I, I, Earl's absolutely right. Having that introspective focus, especially on, um, especially as the organization that may be initiating this type of a transaction or or um, type of a, a partnership arrangement or an agreement, you, the more you know about yourself and the more, I, I think the impetus falls to each individual entity to, to figure out what they're good, like I said, what they're good at, what they're bad at, um, and and drive to solutions using those, leveraging the, the, the strengths, um, and then figuring out where your weaknesses can come together, where you can dovetail those with another partner's strength um, and, and build synergies off of that. That's very helpful. Connor, so maybe taking a, a different lens on kind of clarity of purpose or, you know, objective of a partnership, 
I'm interested if and how does the the purpose and objective of a partnership influence the antitrust view of that specific um, you know transaction? Sure. Yeah. And there's a couple ways you can look at it. You know, one, I, I think from a overall strategic perspective, you know, the antitrust is not necessarily um, playing a role in the, in the clarity of purpose, but the clarity of purpose plays a key role in, in the antitrust considerations. You know, as Andrew uh, spoke to when you're, you're talking about what are the strengths and the weaknesses of a respective organization, um, that really plays into um, the antitrust analysis. You know, what are uh, what are those uh, strengths? You know, do they play together? Uh, do they do they uh, complement each other? Are there opportunities for synergies? That's a really key question. Um, you know, usually, you know, the if there's a strong uh, combination of strengths and weaknesses, you're you're going to get those sorts of uh, synergies where you can show that you know combined the you know, the, the, the two partners will be even better competitors, they'll, they'll better serve the community's health needs, all of those sorts of things. And, and those sorts of benefits are, um, are helpful from an antitrust perspective. Um, you know, you always wanna have a deal where the parties are coming together for the right reasons. You know, they're, they're looking to help each other um, satisfy, uh, you know, different strengths and weaknesses of, of the partners. and you know, rather than just coming together and combining strength to strength to, you know, be even stronger. Um, so, you know, sometimes those deals make sense as well, but, you know, from, from an interest perspective, you know, having that, um, having that clarity of, of purpose of how you're going to combine to better serve the community is, is always going to uh, be helpful uh, in explaining to the regulators and why this why this deal makes sense and why uh, it, it doesn't have anti-competitive uh, problems. Great. Um, and so, just sort of sticking to the the topic of purpose for a moment. So, um, you know, I, I think the clarity of purpose is is important on you know both both sides of a transaction. Um, and it's certainly, in addition to having clarity of purpose around your own kind of objectives, um, probably important to understand those of your partner or those of the, you know, the, the potential partner. So um, maybe, you know, thinking specifically about uh, some physician uh, partnerships and transactions uh, that you all have experienced, what lessons, um, learnings can you share related to managing expectations and balancing um, the other party's kind of purpose and objectives, um, including things like, you know, desire for capital in, in negotiating and ultimately getting to, you know, a deal that's, that's comfortable for, for both of you. Um, Andrew, do you want to take that one? Sure. I'll, I'll kick that one off. Yeah. I, I, so Danielle, what you said at the, at the beginning of that, that, question there, I think is the operative word partners. Um, if you don't look at the party across the table as a partner, um, you're never going to find a, a mutually mutually agreeable position. Um, and you're really setting yourself up for, for failure or at least a very difficult, very difficult time moving forward. So that, and that's, 
if we want to talk about the first lesson, um, you know, for, for balancing what the other side wants, you have to treat them as partners. Um, and that's that's lesson number one always. But I, I think before getting into the lessons, it's helpful to understand where the other party is coming from, what they're looking for out of a transaction. Um, so you can make this a win win situation rather than a, a win lose prisoner's dilemma type situation. So when we think about the partners that fit AOP the best um, and what we typically see out in the market, we, we see organizations and, and practices that want to be part of a national network. Uh, they want to be able to share best practices. They want to um, drive clinical excellence and, and they want to become better physicians. They also, like you mentioned, are looking for capital and resources to help grow their practice. Maybe they want uh, a new physical therapy division within their practice, uh, more time in an operating room at a local ASC, um, You know, access to uh, equity in an ASC, something along those lines. Uh, but most importantly, they want to maintain their independence. Um, and Sorry, Earl. A lot of times they don't want to join a health system or a, a hospital down the road. They they want to stay where they are, um, and and that's those are the kind of partners that tend to gravitate toward us. So when you when we think about that, oh, kind of that overall universe of what our partners are looking for, I think that um, that helps kind of define what our lessons are. So one, like you alluded to, Danielle, is being good stewards of the capital available. Um, money is finite. It doesn't grow on trees and as much as we would love to uh, um, as much as we'd love to to build an ASC for every physician practice that partners with us, it's just not feasible. So we really have to do a good job. Our finance team has to do a good job of balancing what's the the uh, ROI on this. How does this impact patients? And so we have to really take those into account when we make uh, big decisions on on access to capital or resources. Um, you know, and taking a step back, I, I think you also have to know who you are, like we talked about in your last question, and be willing to walk away from a transaction or a potential partnership if it doesn't seem like there's alignment. I think that's there's got to be a, a point where you can reasonably cut bait and say, this is just, it's not going to work. It's not in our best interest. It's not in your best interest. And, you know, you have to be able to look your potential partner in the eye and say, we really do want what's best for you. And we just don't think that's with us. Um, and lastly, you can't forget about your existing partners. You can't forget about the people that you're already, uh, you know, in agreements with, you're already operating with, those who have helped you get to where you are. If you get shiny new object syndrome and you start chasing the new practice or the new health system and uh, whatever else is out there, the, the next JV partner, you, you lose sight of who you are. Um, and, and so that's, that puts that can put you in a difficult situation um, if you're not being open, honest, and transparent with your current partners. And we do our best to do that. Um, loop in the the presidents of our uh, existing practice partners um, and the other physicians uh, employed by those practices, and, and let them know where what we're doing, where where are we headed, are we changing course, are we uh, making a slight correction, are we staying the course? Because we want them to be looped in, we want them to know what's going on, um, and we want them to know that they're still a valued member. This isn't. This isn't all about just the transaction or the deal. This is about building a, a cohesive partnership, new partners and existing partners. That's very, very helpful. Um, I'm curious in terms of the, you know, often governance can be something, you know, whether it's formal governance or, you know, the ability to have a say. How, what strategies have you taken to involve physicians in, in, 
decision making or you know clinical leadership in the absence of sort of you know formal control um, and how has that sort of worked in terms of their feeling like they have um, you know a say and an impact on um, the organization. Yeah, that's a great question. So we have a, a somewhat of a, if you guess you could call it a bifurcated approach. So we have a governance uh, structure at the local, what we call the local practice. So the individual practice partners, they have their own, what we call a local practice board. Um, and that's governed by a charter uh, where all the, the, the parties agree here. Are, um, here's here's the scope of clinical decision making that that the practice is going to maintain we're not going to uh step on your toes we want you to continue to operate and do make the clinical decisions and make the, the operational decisions that have helped make you successful and that will help make um aop and the practice good partners together um and and we we provide significant amount of of say and, and voice for the physicians at the local practice level um, to voice their concerns, to make recommendations, um, and to also cycle through. So there's not a um a bureaucracy, you will, of physician partners at the at the local practice level, right? They all get a say, they all get an opportunity to to be involved um, with the decision making there. And then what you so you kind of zoom out a level and move up more toward what one might consider to be the corporate level. We have a uh, what we call a president's council. And so this is a, a one physician from each of the local practice boards is elected or nominated to serve on this this committee. Um, and this is a committee that meets with our chief medical officer on a monthly basis. And we hammer out big issues, big topics. Keep like I uh, mentioned in, uh, previously, we keep the, the practices updated on what's going on. Um, and make sure that they are looped into decision making. They they understand they're not being blindsided. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of being a good partner is making sure that we're, we're communicating well and maybe even in some cases over communicating um, because we're a national practice. It's hard. We can't just walk down the street or you know pop across uh, the aisle and, and find these physician partners. We have to really schedule this in advance and um, make sure that we're like I said, over communicating or, or maybe even over communicating to them. So we, we have this kind of a, a dual structure and it's been very successful. Um, we get excellent input, especially at our, our uh, president's council level. We have very engaged partners. We're very fortunate um, in that regard. And, and that continues to drive the engagement whenever they know, hey, every month I've got an opportunity to air out my grievances if I need to, to voice my support or to just recommend some changes, or maybe I have a development opportunity to bring to the table. Maybe I know a physician uh, who I went to med school with who has an independent practice who may be looking for a, a partner. And, and so they're able to, we're able to, to collaborate together and share best practices. Um, it, it's a, it's a great way to keep engagement at all levels of the, of the national practice. Yeah, that's, that's great. And Earl, I think I, I believe I recall from the, the panel discussion that you also touched on the importance of, you know, in partnerships with physicians, them having, you know, a continued uh, engagement in, in some form. Anything to add to Andrew's comments? Uh, well, I, I would say, I mean, I, I think wonderful comments. And, you know, I know that the, the a lot of the ambulatory build out that, that we've engaged in over the years uh, that I've been involved with, uh, with physicians uh, has has centered around that that ability to set up a structure that that might have a hospital partner uh, could have a proprietary management partner and would certainly have a physician component and partnership 
and setting up an appropriate governance structure that allows everyone to have a say in what's going on. And, um, you know, many times I've found that, you know, the physicians have a, a very uh, sensible way of wanting to conduct their practices. They're usually very efficient in terms of what they want to do and what they, what they would like to achieve on behalf of their patients. And so you, you need to make sure that that structure is flexible enough that that model can find its way into their practice uh, within, let's say, an ambulatory surgery center. And, you know, many times the hospitals bring to the, really bring to the game uh, some of the back office component um, and some of just the overall market know-how. And and again, a a great opportunity to have synergy and the management companies bring the day-to-day. You know, they're going to be responsible for making sure that the lights are on every day and uh, that the rooms are clean and that the doctors have what they need in order to uh, provide services. So, you know, again, a great opportunity for wins on all sides, but it takes some real understanding. And, you know, there will be times that that, that people will not agree. And and I think what hospitals in particular have had to learn uh, that they cannot always be fully in control of of that dynamic and everything that goes on. You have to actually do some listening um, and you have to be open to some new ideas. Um, but you also need to bring some practicality to everything. And, and so, you know, we do what we do and there's a mission behind it, but if you're losing money uh, on the enterprise, uh, there's something wrong. And so you need to find a way to make sure that, that you're, you're running a good, sound, solid business um, that, that is at least breaking even and should be, quite frankly, should be somewhat profitable uh, in the community. I think you can do it. Uh, I just mm-hmm. think that it requires all parties really to, to be open-minded and, and working together towards a common goal. Yeah, and, and sort of building on that, I mean, you know, that that can take time. So, you know, being thoughtful about how um, a partnership is structured and, you know, what the kind of operating environment is post-transaction can take time. Mm-hmm. Um, given how tight, you know, deal timelines have gotten, I mean, they're, they're fast. Mm-hmm. How, how do you, you know, balance that with your business team? How do you help sort of manage the, you know, working towards a thoughtful, diligent process while, you know, staying competitive in, in a market where, you know, people want deals done as quickly as possible? Yeah, well, I think, I think uh, health systems in particular have had to learn how to move faster. Um, and so, you know, most of us have models for how we like to see these, these deals structured. And quite frankly, I think being able to show other deals that are working fine um, and that have physician partners and maybe have a proprietary partner, those are, that's, a, that's always a great help when you're sitting at the table trying to decide on whether or not you're able to, to get another deal done. Um, if you can point to a past instance um, or multiple instances in the past where here's what we put in place, here's how it's worked. And, um, you know, I, again, I think the proof is, is in, in that really in terms of being able to demonstrate that your model works and it can be successful. I will tell you, it is difficult in my mind. I mean, each one of these deals is slightly different, but the, the deals that get cut that, that, are, that are what I call one-offs or, or unique transactions, those by definition are going to take longer and they're going to require far more, far more discussion and introspection in terms of um, uh, whether you're going to find a way uh, to bring all the parties together, but but some of these others have been done frequently enough, um, where uh, you you can just show examples, and I think many times partners are willing to come forward, and and you know move forward with the process. I will tell you that a lot of these deals have outs; they're not they're not mm-hmm. forever deals, so they do have 
this is a great example of one that that you know you don't you always do have the language that kind of spells how one party or the other can make a decision about moving on and um, I, I found that we've been successful with those uh, within the, uh, the you know kind of the hospital healthcare uh, network yeah it seems like you know given the how quickly this this industry changes and markets change mm -hmm. um, we've also seen you know those making their way into deal structures more frequently. Mm -hmm. um, so switching gears for a moment, one of the other consistent themes you all raised during the panel discussion related to due diligence, which you know we all know is a critical um, step in ensuring that uh, the parties get to a deal that makes sense. So I'm interested uh, in your experience. Are there, are there types of risks or success factors that are particularly difficult to tease out in diligence, um, you know, and, and what those might be. And if so, if you have any sort of lessons learned or strategies to, um, to try to, to get insight into those areas during that diligence period. Uh, Andrew, do you want to lead off with that one? Sure. Sounds good. So one of the strategies that we've, um, we, we've kind of, tinkered with this a little bit since um, since our first deal is moving integration um, into kind of this like con conductor of due diligence role and moving integration under our, our business development umbrella, if you will, because we want integration to flow directly from due diligence. And so we have our integration team directly involved directly involved with with the due diligence process. Um, and we found that, and we're finding, uh, continue to find, that that helps eliminate gaps in communication and it makes sure that we have a consistency of understanding from the day that diligence starts, the day we sign the LOI and we, we kick off diligence the next day, there's no gaps in our understanding between the beginning of diligence and then when we go live with a, um, a practice partner uh, the day after close. And it's, you know, now it's this brave new world of how do we, how do we integrate this practice in with the, with the national practice. And so that's, I think that's the, the strategy we've seen that helps the most. Um, you, you just, you avoid any balls getting dropped in, in terms of specific challenges. I think that we, that we've had to monitor for, or that we will monitor for maybe a little bit more moving forward um, contracts. On the diligence side, contracts are so, at least in the physician practice realm, um, when we start talking to partners, a lot of times they may have incomplete contracts, they may have an amendment, but not the original contract or the contract, but not the amendment, um, you know, in terms of the services agreements, payer contracts, which may be outdated. Um, so we have there we have lots of shouldn't say lots we have uh, issues with, with that and that's just a pain point for us. Uh, we want to make sure we know exactly what we're walking into. We assume these contracts. Um, sometimes we have to go through a a lengthy or an arduous change of control approval with a payer contract or another service agreement. Um, that there's there's another uh, another pain point. Um, and but making sure that we have that full universe and this full understanding of the contracts and, and what are the risks, what are the upsides, what are our limits of liability, all the terms that come within that, um, that's that's difficult. Um, and I guess one way that we're, we're working on um, combating that or a strategy that we've used to try to 
better understand the contracts and the language that we have in them and our, our risks and liabilities is implementing a robust contract lifecycle management system. Uh, we implemented one about four months ago. And so we're able to actually take our deal documents, the contracts that we receive from the practice during diligence and drop those into our um, our contract management software. And then we used, we're able to use this kind of high powered AI in the background and pull out quite a few of those terms and start categorizing our risks. Um, so that's something we are, we're using now and, and we'll continue to, to use moving forward. Um, billing and coding, if you want to talk about the umbrella, the umbrella of compliance um, within due diligence, that's just difficult. Um, every physician practice has their own EMR. Um, typically, they're not on, on Epic, which Epic's a fantastic system, very robust. You know, health, a lot of health systems and hospitals use that. It's the most commonly used, uh, most popular EMR. So, but with some of the other systems, they don't have quite the same robust reporting capabilities. Um, and sometimes the physician practices just, that's, that's a, that's a challenge for them. Um, like we talked about earlier, resources mm -hmm. are scarce and thin. And so getting good data on billing and, and coding, um, is, is another issue with, with diligence. Um, you know, something you just have to get comfortable with the data that you have. Um, but I'll, you know, obviously you want as much complete data in that realm as, as possible. I don't know if I have a good strategy for that. Um, it's, you know, kind of one of the, the risks that you just get into. Um, uh, but you just, we, it's one thing we are, are learning to deal with and just taking it for what it is and, and doing the best that we can and, um, you know, not allowing the transaction to slow down um, and, you know, not holding our partners up because of that. Yeah. Earl, uh, similar thoughts. What, what areas have you found, you know, to be particularly important to diligence, but maybe also particularly difficult to, yeah. to get a sense for during diligence? So my, one of my greatest struggles actually with diligence is, you know, we all start out with this great process. We understand it's going to take X period of time and then the pressure starts to mount. Oh boy, we need to move this deal faster. And so, you know, what, what starts as a true full-blown due diligence type exercise among the parties suddenly turns into more of a confirmatory due diligence process. And so, I, I mean, that's, and that's more of an internal battle um, that I've had to kind of deal with in a number of transactions and, you know, really making folks aware of the risks of doing that. I mean, because, you know, just if you're going to do confirmatory due diligence, I mean, there are going to be things that are missed. And so you're assuming that, in my mind, at least, you're assuming there are going to be things that, that will need to be cleaned up uh, kind of post-transaction. And the goal really is making sure that your board is aware of that uh, and that they're comfortable with that, that process. And, you know, that you've done appropriate reserving from a financial standpoint, uh, because again, likely there are going to be things that you find um, that, that will need to be dealt with on a post-close basis. And so that's been one thing. The other thing, quite frankly, is when you do that type of due diligence, um, it, it means that other things are being forgotten as well or not dealt with. And so, you know, I was I was at one organization where we did a transaction and, um, you know, the organization I was at didn't at the time didn't have that many vice presidents. Uh, the organization that we were acquiring had a lot of vice presidents. Um, and so, you know, in order to get the deal done, everybody came over uh, with the same titles. And so, you know, suddenly you had an organization that had very few uh, vice presidents that acquired another entity that was significantly smaller that had far, far greater number of vice presidents. And it created this internal friction that didn't need to exist, um, but it existed uh, because we hadn't done the appropriate planning on the front end. 
Um, and, you know, I, and again, I think we learned a lot from that. And so the next time out, uh, we knew how to correct for that and how to, how to deal, for, deal with it. But, you know, things like talking about that, making sure that comp levels are, are, are the same, figuring out, you know, wh whether there's going to be redundancy once you come together uh, in terms of positioning and positions. And, and if there is, how are you going to deal with those issues? Um, I think you've seen many a deal that, that's been put together recently where this concept of co-CEOs is thrown out. Well, mm -hmm. you know, the nice thing about that is, is that everyone knows that that does not work. Uh, but it still is being used as a vehicle for getting these deals done quickly. Um, and, and in my view, at least, it, it only means that you're going to have a, a, a significant pain point for at least two or three years post-transaction uh, when you're trying to kind of sort out who is the, what, what will the management team look like and who's in charge, so to speak. So those are some of the, the bigger things that I've, I've experienced, at least in the transactions I've been involved with. Yeah, that's great. And we've definitely seen that a lot lately. <laughs> so Connor, I want to, I don't, I don't want the, the time to expire before we touch on some of the, um, the excellent insight you shared uh, related to the current state of antitrust enforcement and what that might look like uh, in the near future. So we talked a bit in the beginning about potential impacts on uh, transaction volume and structure. I mean, what are your other thoughts on how, you know, the increase in antitrust enforcement, uh, you know, of the current administration is likely to impact, you know, healthcare organizations, hospitals, and, um, you know, other healthcare organizations in the next few years? Sure. And, and just a reminder, you know, healthcare really has been in the spotlight for the government for, you know, a, a number of years now in terms of enforcement. So, in some ways, this isn't new, um, but in some ways, it, it is a little bit new in terms of the threshold uh, for challenging deals. I think has um, you know decreased a little bit. In other words, you know more transactions are being looked at more closely, um, and you know that does have a, a little bit of a chilling effect. You know, you, you, when you're you're talking with clients about a potential deal. Uh, there's there's more uncertainty about whether the the government will uh, allow the deal to go forward or challenge it, and you know that uncertainty is, um, as everyone knows, never good for for deals. You know that there still is a lot of learning in terms of um, you know what deals are challenged and what are not, um, and so there there still is a pretty good idea of you know where approximately the line is, even if it may be shifting a little bit. Um, I would say one area in particular where there, there is more of a shift in enforcement um, is, sorry to say this, Andrew, in, in the, the private equity space where there really is a, a focus both from the FTC and DOJ on private equity deals and in particular uh, roll-up deals. And, you know, Previously, uh, you know, with private equity, there would be a lot of smaller deals that fly under the radar for um, reporting to the government. You know, the, the threshold for reporting to government is about $100 million currently, um, $101 million. Um, and so a lot of the smaller, you know, physician practice deals um, don't necessarily get reported in the first instance. Um, so it, it's a little bit harder for the, uh, the government to enforce, uh, you know, uh, in that area. Um, and now they're having 
more focused on you know those smaller deals and and, and the roll-up transactions um, and trying to implement um, more prophylactic rules when uh, when there are um, companies that are uh, making uh, anti-competitive acquisitions. Um, we've seen a couple instances where um, and, and recently where uh, private equity firms have been had a roll-up strategy where they acquire a number of different smaller uh, uh, companies um, are, are eventually one of their deals is reviewed by uh, the FTC and the FTC imposes uh, basically additional restrictions on future deals by requiring even uh, deals that are not traditionally reportable to the government to be reported to them um, in, in advance of closing. So um, you are seeing that greater focus. And I, I think at least from, from our private equity clients, we're, we're seeing that they understand that they are a little bit more in the spotlight and you know, their, their smaller deals uh, may be more in the spotlight than in previous years. Andrew and Earl, I'm, I'm interested in you know, the perspective that you all have on this. Is, is the current level of antitrust enforcement or the changing, evolving focus of antitrust enforcement impacting how you all think about um, what your transaction activity might look like going forward or how you think about certain um, transaction opportunities? Earl, maybe you want to start? Yeah, yeah happy to. So the answer is yes. And, and I, I think that, um, you know, particularly since from our perspective, uh, you know, there are far more competitors in the market that, that I'm not so certain are factored into uh, antitrust analysis um, than, than, you know, and, and therefore, and I believe should be. So, you know, for instance, we now see that we've got uh, many payers that have entered the, what I'll call the uh, health and hospital space over the years. And so, you know, they're, they're owning their own uh, primary care practices. In some cases, they're owning their own um, hospitals, uh, certainly owning their own surgical centers. And so, you know, we've got competition that, that are really, um, that's hitting us from a lot of different angles. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that it's made it very, very difficult in some instances, uh, just with this heightened enforcement, it's made it very difficult in some instances for organizations that have a, a good reason uh, to seriously look at opportunities to do things in a collaborative fashion within a particular um, uh, geography. It's made it very difficult for those organizations to find a way to come together and provide those services. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew, uh, Connor just mentioned, you know, the the folk there being greater focus on you know, some of the the PE backed um, platforms and you know, quote unquote roll up. Ha, has there been any, you know, how has this sort of factored in, you know, for you? So we haven't we haven't had to uh, be concerned yet with the. Uh, the reporting threshold, um, but it's absolutely something that we monitor on an ongoing basis, um, and it's something that we are prepared and and we continue to evolve the, evolve this and continue to prepare to discuss this with our potential practice partners. This gets brought up. Um, actually, we just had a, a, a potential partner about a week and a half ago ask this question too. With all the recent enforcement from the FTC, you know what what are you all doing? Should we be concerned? Uh, you know, we're not we're not concerned. We're we're going to do the right thing. We're, we'll follow the, the guidelines that the government lays out for us to the best of our ability. Um, but it's absolutely something that we we are monitoring and and 
frankly, Danielle, we wouldn't be doing our jobs if if we didn't. Um, you know, we we want to be, like I mentioned earlier, good stewards to our private equity sponsor, but we also want to be good stewards to our our existing partners as well. And if if we're not keeping an eye on this, we're 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 letting them down. Any closing thoughts from the group? Well, that's a that's a tall order. I get you know at the end of the day for me, it's just as I I would just harken back to what we started with, which is, you know, go into these transactions and these thoughts with with uh, you know wide eyed and and truly uh, giving. Uh, some long, shorter and longer term thought to what you think will be successful for your business um, into the future. And, and then have the discipline to stick to that plan. Um, because I think that, that many times, uh, you know, opportunities come available in the market and people attempt to do an incredibly quick pivot in order to take advantage of it. And sometimes I think that the, those decisions are, are not well-founded. Um, and there's certainly the, the, time needed to evaluate the opportunity is not there and it's not given and you end up making some big mistakes so be mindful that's my my advice and i would add from an enterprise perspective you know i i touched on this earlier but uh you know really going back to a lot of what we've discussed on this call you know if you're going into a deal for the the right reasons uh you, you know uh what why you're going into it uh, what the partners want out of the deal, um, you know, you're going to be a lot stronger footing, uh, even in this heightened uh, interest uh, enforcement environment. Well, excellent perspective. I appreciate all of your time. This was a great discussion. Um, and thank you for uh, sharing your perspective today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.